Well, you know that our theme in 2022 here at First Baptist is re dot dot dot. And we have been exploring the various words from our theological and biblical vocabularies that begin with that prefix, re. And so for the month of August, our theme is rejoice. And we have been reading together and studying the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. It has been our guide. I've been asking you to read through it in your daily Bible readings. And when this month is over, you will have read through Philippians four times because I want us to be immersed in the insights that are found in Philippians and to familiarize all of us with the testimony of joy that we find in this letter. And so let's continue this morning. The text is found in Philippians 3, if you have your copy of the New Testament. And I've entitled the message today, The Prize of the High Calling. So we'll begin in verse 7 of Philippians 3. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Certainly one of the more famous passages in Philippians. There are numerous famous, famous passages in Philippians, this being one of them. Come back tonight and we will explore several more of them in our Bible study time at 6 o'clock. But speaking of Gideon, um, I thought I heard someone say Gideon. And uh, there's the newest grandbaby in the Wiles family, little Gideon Lee Wiles. Isn't he awesome? And... Uh, We've measured him, and he is practically perfect in every way, as they say. But we're glad to have him. Congratulations to Josiah and Adrian, our son and daughter-in-law, for their first baby. Well, this time of year, football fans are getting excited. This is fall camp for those of us who love football. So at every level, high school, um, college, professional sports, the players are preparing. I know that y'all are already following this, so I don't need to give you an update. But you know, we have three quarterbacks at Auburn right now vying for a starting position. I know you probably watched all the same videos I have, and you're, you've got your favorite. I've been watching, I've been reading all the press releases, and 
You know, I've been watching the videos. They're playing seven on seven. The, the coaches are out there with these quarterbacks from Auburn, and they're teaching them their footwork and how to get a pass on target to their receivers and going through all of these reps. And what's the goal? Well, the goal is to win. The goal is to win the SEC, to win the national championship, to beat Alabama. We all know what the goal is. And so we're getting ready. Then if you're a pro football fan, Tampa Bay Buccaneers fans are in a tizzy. Have y'all been following this? Because Tom Brady is not at camp. 45 years old, and he's won how many Super Bowls? Seven Super Bowls, thank you. Um, And he is out for personal reasons. I read last night there's one conjecture that he's one of the masked singers in the TV show, (laughs) Masked Singers, and soon to be revealed. But I also read an article, one of the sports writers said, we're getting worried because Time is of the essence. And they said this about Brady. They said, we're worried about his, his timing is going to be off. How, how's he going to be in sync with his receivers? He's missing all these reps. And then um, this year during the All-Star game, the Major League Baseball All-Star game, one of my favorite people in all of Major League Baseball is Ron Washington. I, I love Wash. Don't you think he'd make a great coach for the Rangers? But anyway, be that as it may. <laughs> right now, he's an Atlanta Braves assistant. And I don't know if y'all saw this or not. There's a video that was circulated during the All-Star game. He's one of the assistant coaches for the All-Star game. And the Braves and the Mets are in this uh, playoff run against each other. And Ron Washington was coaching the first baseman, Pete Alonzo, who's this multi-millionaire first baseman for the Mets. But it was on the All-Star team, so... There's this video of Ron, who's been in Major League Baseball for over 40 years now, teaching Alonzo how to better field a ground ball at first base. So he's coaching the guy who plays first base for their arch rival. But as I was watching that, I was thinking to myself, how difficult can it be to catch a ground ball? He is a professional first baseman. And yet Ron saw something in him and was teaching him. Well, as I thought about all that, y'all, here's what I've been thinking. Think about these boys that are, that are trying to become the starting quarterback at Auburn. They have been playing football their whole lives. They have been dropping back. They've been throwing passes. They've been running plays. Why are they taking all these reps? Why, why is there a coach showing them how to improve their footwork? What, what could you possibly teach Tom Brady at fall camp? that he doesn't already know. Why, why are you worried, if you're a Tampa Bay fan, that Tom Brady's timing is going to be off? And why, why would a major league first baseman still be practicing ground balls? Well, here's the deal. Every single one of them knows they can improve, right? And they're still practicing. As good as they are, they're still practicing. All right, I want you to think about the Apostle Paul. We're looking at Philippians. This is about A.D. 61, give or take. Many scholars think Paul was born about A.D. 5 or so, somewhat of a contemporary of Jesus. So Paul now is in Rome. He's mid-50s. He's an evangelist. He's a pastor. He's a church planter. He's a missionary. He's an author. 
What else does Paul need to learn about Jesus? Surely he knows it all. Here's what's interesting though. When you read Philippians 3, Paul adopts, he borrows athletic imagery in this text. And he applies it to himself. So, so if you look at, look at this text, look at verse 12. Paul says in verse 12, I'm not already there. As much as I know, my life experience, all these years I've had following Jesus, Paul says, I, I, I really haven't gotten there yet. He says, so, verse 12, I'm pressing on. He says, I, I just don't have it all yet. I'm, I don't consider myself yet to have taken it. And so he says in verse 13, I'm straining. That's a word from the athletic field in Paul's day in Greek. It, it's a reference to an athlete just, just giving everything that he had. Paul says, as a matter of fact, I'm pressing on, verse 14, I'm just, I'm just exercising everything I know. I'm headed toward the goal, translated into English, the word goal in Greek is the word finish line, if you will. In other words, Paul said, I'm, I'm headed toward the finish line and I'm looking for my prize. Another word out of the athletic field in Paul's day. Once they cross the finish line, if you win, you would get the prize. And so Paul uses all this, all this athletic imagery. So here he is after all of these years. He says, I'm still learning. I'm still practicing. I'm still growing. I'm still disciplining myself. I realize that I still have yet to arrive. Now let me just pause and ask you, how about you? Have you already arrived? Do you think you've learned everything you need to learn as a Christian? If you answer yes to that question, that's exhibit A, that you have not yet arrived. Because it doesn't matter how long you've been doing this. It doesn't matter how much you know. There is still so much that you don't know. It's amazing to me. You know, all the years that I've been preaching and teaching the Bible, reading and studying the Scripture, it is amazing to me. I can be seated in my study, reading a passage of Scripture, and I will think to myself, I've never read that right there before. I've never seen that insight before. This is the first time this has ever crossed my mind when I'm reading this text. In other words, God is constantly teaching us and we're still learning and we're still growing and we're still practicing just like Paul says because that's how it is. There's so much to know and to experience in this Christian life. Now, so what was Paul learning? What has Paul learned across the years? Well, I would like to just point out to you this morning just a couple things real quickly. I want you to notice first of all Paul has discovered and learned, and he's certain of this, that salvation is actually in Christ alone. So I want you to look at verse 9. Paul says this in verse 9. He says, now, when it's all said and done, Paul says, when, when everything is over and I'm standing before God, that's the picture he's painted. Paul says in verse 9, I am not going to stand on my own righteousness. I, I'm not going to stand on my own accomplishments when that day comes. I have learned that that's not enough. 
it's inadequate for Paul, it's inadequate for me and you. In other words, Paul says, here's what I've learned. When that day comes for me, here's what I know. I am only going to stand on Jesus. My faith in Christ is the only thing that will give me salvation, eternal life, right standing before God. It's only faith in Christ. Now, prior to that though, y'all, you, you look at the first six verses, which we didn't read, that's the context for Paul sharing that with us. Because if you go back, look at chapter three, if you still have your Bibles, over the first two or three verses, Paul challenges some false teachers at the church in Philippi. We don't know everything about it. It appears that there were some teachers at the church at Philippi who were telling these Christians, you've got to be more Jewish to be a better Christian. And so Paul says, if that's what they're saying, here's what I want you to know. Look at the end of verse three. They're putting confidence in the flesh. He said, if you're going to do that, then get in line behind me because I have more reason to be confident in the flesh than anybody you've ever met. And then he gives us his resume. Look at the end of verse four. If anybody else thinks they can put confidence in their flesh, you're in line behind me because let me tell you about me. And then Paul tells us, starting in verse five, he says, I've been a Jew since the day I was born. I'm not a proselyte. I didn't arrive here later as an adult. I was born into this. And then he tells us, he says, I'm of the people of Israel. And then he says, you remember his given name in Hebrew is Saul. Remember King Saul, the first king of Israel, was a Benjamite. And so he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, just like our first king. And then he says, I'm not some Hellenized, Greek-speaking Jew. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I still speak the mother tongue. That's what was taught me in my home, in other words. And then he says, you want to talk about the law? I have forgotten more about the law than you'll ever know. I'm a Pharisee. I've studied the law. I know what the law says. And then he says, you want to talk about zeal? I actually persecuted this movement that we now know as Christianity, the church. I persecuted it at the beginning because it wasn't Jewish enough. It wasn't the fulfillment of the law as I saw it. And so I was trying to put a stop to it. He says, and when it comes to keeping the law, faultless. In other words, Paul said, look, I want you to know I've got it going on. I am qualified to stand before God as a Jew. But now here he is all these years later, and he's come to a completely different conclusion. Well, what happened to Paul? Do you remember well, you go back and you read Acts 9, you know what happened to Paul? He met Jesus. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you all this morning, when you meet Jesus, everything changes. Paul met the resurrected Lord on the way to Damascus. And everything changed after that. All of his life came into focus. And he began to see his accomplishments for what they were. Insufficient to qualify him to stand before God. And he recognized it's only through faith in Christ alone. You meet Jesus, everything changes. Think about it, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was successful, wealthy. He had a great life. What happened to Zacchaeus? He met Jesus. And all of a sudden when he met Jesus, all those unscrupulous business practices, 
the way he had been abusing people in his community, he realized, I can't do that any longer. So finally, he told Jesus, he said, okay, these ill-gotten gains, half of it, I'm just going to give it away to the poor. And then everybody else that I've abused, I'm going to repay them four times what I owe them. What happened to Zacchaeus? He met Jesus. How about the woman at the well? We don't know everything about the woman at the well. She had been through these relationships. We don't know if it's because these men passed her one to another. That's possible in the ancient world. Or was she moving from one relationship to another? We don't know. We do know this, though. She came to get water in the middle of the day because she didn't want to be with all the women in the village. And so what happened to her? Next thing you know, she's running back into the village, and she doesn't care who she sees. She doesn't care who she talks to. She's talking to everybody. What happened to her? She met Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it, when you meet Jesus? We have a a leader in West Africa, Hamadou. Cindy calls him Hamadou GQ because he's so good looking, as she says. (laughs) Hamadou, son of the chief, raised a Muslim, devout Muslim. We met him years ago, introduced Christ to him. We thought he gave his life to Christ, but he went back to Islam in the mosque for years. This past December, he's now the new chief. His father has died. He declared to his village, and he told them this, I'm actually a follower of the Jesus way. I won't be going back to the mosque anymore. I won't be observing all the fasts. I'm now a follower of Jesus. What happened to Hamadou? He met Jesus. That's what happened. (laughs) You see, when you meet Jesus, everything changes. So Paul has realized now, all these years later, ultimate meaning is not accomplished through human achievement. It's not accomplished through our goodness or our abilities. Ultimate meaning, fulfillment, and eternal salvation is only found in and through Jesus Christ and in him alone. So today, if you're wondering, how do I get that? How do I find that hope? How do I find that eternal life? Well, you only find it through Jesus. It's found nowhere else. Paul now is convinced of that after all of these years. So Paul says, here's what else I've learned. Not only have I discovered that eternal life is in Christ alone, Paul says, here's what I now know. I know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul says, everything else is secondary than that. Think about it. Years have passed since the Damascus Road experience. He's had time to reflect. He's learned. He's matured. He's grown. What's his conclusion? Well, let me show what his conclusion is. Look at verse seven. He says, all that that I just mentioned, everything that I thought qualified me, he says, actually, I now consider loss. As a matter of fact, he says in verse eight, I consider everything a loss. When you compare it to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, then in verse eight, he says, I consider them. Now, the NIV translates this word very politely, garbage. The Greek word underneath it is disgusting. So it's a polite word for garbage. So whatever you think of as garbage, add to it, and you might approach what this word really means. Paul says, when I look at everything that I thought I was accomplishing on my own that qualified me to right standing before God, what I've discovered is if you compare that to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, then all that's like garbage. It's just to be thrown out. It's refuse. It's waste. He says, I want to, I want to 
to know, I want to gain Christ. I want to be found in Christ. I want to know Christ. That is the heart of Christianity, y'all. It's knowing Jesus. You want to know what it's all about? It's about knowing Jesus. It's not about getting everything right. It's about knowing Jesus and letting Jesus guide you and shape you and develop you and conform you into his image. That's what this is really all about. Remember in Acts 4 when Peter and John had been brought in before the Sanhedrin and they had been healing people and teaching in the name of Jesus and finally these guys brought them in to evaluate them and Luke tells us that the Sanhedrin said, we know who these guys are, unschooled, ordinary men and they recognized them as having been with Jesus. Now, let me just say to y'all, what do you want to be known for? I want to be famous for being known for having been with Jesus. That's what I would say about me. When people meet me, I want them to think, man, he must have been with Jesus. That's the kind of person I am. You know, Peter says this in 2 Peter 1. He says, when we were on the mountain of transfiguration, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, we saw it for ourselves. We didn't just know about it. We saw it for ourselves. John, when he wrote the letter we call 1 John, he says, that which was from the beginning, that which we've heard, that which we have seen with our own eyes, which we've looked at, our hands have touched. In other words, John says, I want to write to you about Jesus, and I want you to know we know him. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. So now here Paul says this in this passage. He says, that's it. Here's what it is. I want to know Jesus. I want to know everything about him. I want to know him. I want to experience him. Now, I would tell y'all that when God created you as a human, he's put inside of you some very deep needs. And they're universal. They're all across the human family. We all have them. You know, just like right now, little Gideon. I mean, he's just a few days old. But when he opens his eyes, you know what he's doing? He's, he's looking. He's looking for recognition. And guess what? He'll never get over that. He's going to keep looking for it. And that's why one of these days, you know what he'll be doing? He'll be going, mom, mom, hey, mom, mom, look at me. Watch me. Watch me. Hey, watch me do this. I'm about to, y'all, hey, watch me. What is that? It's, it's a desire to be recognized. It's a, it's a desire to know and to be known. It's a very deep need. You know, a few years ago, we had Andy Crouch here at our church. Andy's a writer and a, a Christian thinker, and he, he's written a new book called The Life We're Looking For. And in this book, he points out something really incredible that's happening in our culture right now. He talks about the difference between personalized and personal. And those are two different things. He says, we got some mail at our house, and it was in cursive, to the Crouch family with their address. And he thought, man, we've got a handwritten letter. When's the last time you got one of those? He said he opened it up in cursive, dear Andy. And then he looked at it and he realized, it's just a form letter that's been personalized. My neighbor got the same letter. And the next person got the same letter. It's been personalized, but there's nothing personal about it. Andy says, it's fascinating that in this Technological society, that's what's happened to us. There's a lot of personalization. There's just not much that's personal anymore. And so, would you believe that the number one cost for Medicare, $6.7 billion annually, you know what it's spent on? 
is what is referred to as objective social isolation. That's a fancy term for loneliness. Our government right now estimates that through Medicare, we spend about $6.7 billion trying to address loneliness and all of its ramifications in our society. Andy Krause says, isn't it fascinating that our media now is called social, our technology is personalized, and even our machines can recognize our faces, and we're lonely. How can you possibly be lonely in America today? We're in the most connected era in human history. And guess what? People all across our nation are lonely. And they're suffering from it. The point is, there's a deep need inside of every human being to be known and to know. God's created you for relationship. He wants you to know him. And he wants to know you. What does Paul say? Paul says, I want to know Jesus. And I want to tell y'all, there's a difference between knowing Jesus and knowing about Jesus. Those are two different things. I've used this illustration before, but I'll do it again today. When I was um, a ball player playing baseball, I was an infielder. Because uh, that's usually where all the you know, more intelligent baseball players find themselves in the infield. But I was a terrible judge of fly balls. I'm an infielder. I'm a ground ball guy. Every, foul, every fly ball, I called it. Mine, got it? It might be deep left field. But when I first saw it, I got it. I'm just a terrible judge. So, I'm at the Byron Nelson, and I'm standing behind the number one green, and I'm there to watch a high school phenom. His name was Tiger Woods. He was in high school playing in the Byron Nelson for the first time, and there he was out in the fairway, and I'm standing behind the green, and I'm watching. He hits his ball, and I think to myself, that ball's coming right at me. But then I think to myself, I know I don't know how to judge a fly ball. I know good and well it's not coming at me. I'm just thinking it's coming at me. So I'm not going to do anything because I know it's not coming at me. But as it got closer, I thought, it's pretty much coming at me. And <laughs> so the ball lands right in front of me, bounces up, kind of grazes me on the foot, on the shin or whatever, and drops back into the rough. Tiger's daddy comes up. And he says, sir, did that ball hit you? I said, not really. I mean, it just barely touched me. So Tiger walks up, and Mr. Wood says to Tiger, you need to apologize to this man right here. You just hit him with your golf ball. And Tiger said, I'm sorry about that. I said, it's okay. It just grazed me. And then Tiger said, why don't you just kick it down on the green? <laughs> and I couldn't help myself, y'all. I said, why don't you just hit it on the green? <clears throat> so, so, you know, simple thing. But anyway... His dad laughed, and we laughed. That was it. So, years ago, when we were in seminary. One of the guys that I grew up with, went to high school with, went to high school with his brother, and known him, as, known him my whole life, know his parents, know his brother, know his sister. His name Mike Oberry. He's a catcher from the New York Yankees. So they were coming through town playing the Rangers. So when they were at the hotel, I called the hotel, talked to Oberry. I said, hey, man, I want to come watch you play. He said, okay, that's great. He said, don't come tonight. I'm not playing tonight. Come tomorrow night. He said, I'll leave you some tickets. Uh, at the will call VIP window. I said, okay. So Cindy and I, we went with some friends. I get there. There's a note from O'Berry. He says, hey, Wiles, come down to the uh, bullpen. I go down the bullpen. He introduces me to several Yankees players, all that. Here's what I'm going to say. 
when Tiger Woods is coming through the Metroplex, I don't call him. I don't know him. I know about him. But when Mike Oberry came through the Metroplex, I called him. You know why? Because I know him. So here's what I want to tell you. There's a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. And knowing about Jesus is insufficient. A lot of people know about Jesus. Paul doesn't say my overwhelming desires know about Jesus. No, it's to know Jesus. And so I just want to encourage you this morning. The apostle Paul said after all these years, here's what I believe. This is what I'm after, knowing Jesus. So how well do you know him? You see, it's going, it's going to take something out of you to know him. Some time and energy, investment, discipline, willingness to be obedient to him. It, it takes time. One other thing real quickly. So Paul says, as I look at all this, Paul says, here's what I'm really doing. He says, I am striving toward this prize. I'm, I'm, I'm straining. I'm pressing on. And I love what he says. He says, I'm forgetting what's behind me. I love that, y'all. I love that. You know, you can't, you don't run a race by looking behind you. That's not how it works. You, you look ahead. You don't, you don't drive your car by looking in the rearview mirror. You glance at the rearview mirror. You, you look at what's in front of you. You face the future. And he, here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. When you meet Jesus, he is always more interested in where you are going and who you can become than where you've been or who you've been. Amen. You might be the woman caught in adultery. Jesus is looking at you for your future. You, you may be an unscrupulous tax collector. Jesus is looking for who you can become. You, you may be the woman at the well. Jesus is looking at the kind of person you can live into. Now, not everybody gets it. Not everybody does. Some people turn it down. The rich young ruler, Jesus looked at him and said, okay, I know what you need. Here's what I want you to do. He couldn't do it. So, so not everybody can do it. But you have the unique opportunity to forget what's behind you and lean into something brand new. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17? If any person's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is now gone, the new has come. Everything is new. Because you see, the prize in front of you, it's a heavenly prize. It's, a, it's an upward call. It's, it's God calling on you to live differently, to have a heavenly perspective. Because after all, if you look, back at, look down at verse 20 of Philippians 3, Paul wasn't just a Roman citizen. Paul was a heavenly citizen. So Paul knew his citizenship was in heaven. And he knew that God was calling him in that direction, calling him forward, upward, to have a heavenly perspective on everything that happened to him. And that's what God wants for you. He wants you to have his perspective. He wants to rescue you from low living. And right now, as I look at my culture, if there's anything we are guilty of in the West, it is low living. Just focused on the wrong things. Things that don't really in the long run matter. But people get so distracted by it. And so this morning, you can be focused on the wrong problems. And I will tell you this, it will rob you of your joy. Think about what Paul could have been doing. Paul could have been having this conversation there. He's under house arrest in Rome. Guess who's in power in Rome? Nero. Paul could have written the Philippians and said, y'all, you ain't gonna believe what it's like here in Rome. Nero is the emperor. He's terrible. I don't trust this government. 
It's corrupt. I don't trust anything they say. I was watching CNN last night, listening to what Nero had to say, and I just don't believe a word of it. I don't trust the guys who work for him. I'm just telling you. And, and, and there's no hope for me. They're, I mean, they're not going to know who I am. I'm just a Jew. I'm a Jew living here, and I'm a Roman citizen, but they don't care about that. How in the world is anything good going to come from this? Could he not have written all of that? And we would have read it and said, well, it's this, this tough. It's tough being a Jewish prisoner in Rome. No, but Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. That's what he writes in this letter. Paul says, look, y'all, I'm, I'm a heavenly citizen. I'm not just a Roman citizen. I'm a heavenly citizen. Look upward. Don't get distracted. So I just want to ask you today, what are you troubled by today? What is it that's, that's just got you? Are you distracted? Are you focused on the wrong things? Are, are, are you disillusioned? Are you discouraged? Are you lonely? Are, are you guilty of just low living? And you've got all your focus and all your attention on those things. I've got good news for you this morning. Because here's what Paul says. Paul says the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus is everything. And I want to know him. And here's what I want to encourage you in. You can ask God to shift your focus. Because knowing Jesus is the answer. And guess what he offers you? Power. Paul says I want to know him and I want to know the power of his resurrection. So how do I know he can shift your focus? Because he can bring the dead back to life. That's how I know. And he can change you. He can rescue you from low living. He can answer your disillusionment, your discouragement, your distracted living. He can even speak to you in your loneliness. And he can meet your deepest need. Because he is our Lord. And you can claim that prize of the heavenly calling that is found only in Christ Jesus. May it be so. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, today we want to thank you, Lord. We want to thank you for the fact that you do rescue us from low living, <laughs> that you offer us something much greater than what can so easily distract us here in our lives. And there may be those today within the sound of my voice, Lord, who are disillusioned, discouraged, distracted. And right now, instead of a heavenly focus, everything they have, all their energy, every moment of their lives is focused on things that are of this earth. And they don't have the right perspective. And so today, I pray, Lord, you'd intervene in their lives and may they experience the beauty of what Paul knew. And it was how Paul was able to maintain his joy even in the midst of overwhelming circumstances. So I ask you, Lord, to restore joy where it's needed today, where it's been lost, and focus and an upward call in people's lives. And may we see the fruit of it in the lives of those who make those decisions. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.